Wait, what? So this happened. I'm Rachel Vallesnor, and this is the podcast Hell is Not the End, although it feels like just the beginning sometimes. Is anything really the end, though? This podcast is meant to explore the limitless possibilities of one's own soul. Why do people do bad things? Why are there countless happenings beyond understanding? Why, when we are cautioned not to do something, do we just do it anyway? The definition of curiosity, a strong desire to know or learn something. There you have it. I will curiously explore why. Hell is not the end. Robert Spangler was born on January 10, 1933 in Ames, Iowa, where a laboratory is named after his father, a civil engineer. Robert meets his first wife, Nancy, while in high school. The couple marry in 1955 and move to Littleton, Colorado. Robert and Nancy have two kids, a son named David in 1961 and a daughter named Susan in 1963. Robert was working for the American Water Works Company by 1978. Before that, Robert worked for Honeywell's Camera and Instruments Division. He had also served as a public relations director for a nonprofit and a part-time disc jockey. On the morning of December 30, 1978, deputies from Arapahoe County Sheriff's Office respond to the scene of a possible double homicide-suicide in a private residence in Littleton, Colorado. Neighbors discover the bodies of 45-year-old Nancy, 17-year-old David, and 15-year-old Susan. All three had suffered gunshot wounds from a 38 caliber handgun. Susan was found partially clothed in her bed with a bullet wound to the back. David, also found in his bed, was found with a bullet wound to his upper chest. Nancy's body was found slumped over a typewriter in the basement with a bullet wound to her forehead. There was a typewritten suicide note with a typed initial found with her and her typewriter. Robert Spangler, 45 years old at the time, was thought to be the only surviving family member. When questioned by investigators, he told them that he was not at home at the time. Robert admitted that he and Susan were having marital problems and that he was planning on leaving her, while also having an affair with a co-worker, Sharon Cooper. He stated that he had left the house early in the morning and returned to find the sheriff's deputies. Robert's story would change with each repeated account. Polygraph tests would reflect inconclusive answers in the role he played in his family's deaths. To more than one examiner, the 38 caliber weapon that was used in the murders not only belonged to Robert, but gunshot residue was found on the palm of his right hand. On January 3, 1979, the Arapahoe County Coroner will close the case as a double homicide suicide. The Sheriff's Office was unable to dispute the coroner's findings and after exhausting all possible investigative leads, forcing them to close the case. Most of the evidence in the case were returned to Robert or simply destroyed. Seven months after the murder, Robert marries his co-worker, who he was having the affair with, Sharon Cooper, and she moves into the house with him, where his family was killed. They shared a common interest in hiking. Sharon would go on to write a book about her experience in the, at the Grand Canyon. Like in his first marriage, Robert and his second wife would begin to have marital problems. His second wife would recount that after the death of Robert's father, Robert was out to get her. They divorced in 1988. In August 1990, Robert marries for the third time, Donna Sunling, moving to Durango, Colorado. Donna was an aerobics instructor who had five grown children of her own, including several grandchildren from a previous marriage. 
Donna did not share a love of hiking like Robert and his previous wife Sharon did. Donna had a horrific fear of heights, and this supposedly led to marital problems. In April 1993, in the hopes of saving their marriage, they backpack in the Grand Canyon. On April 11, 1993, Robert appears at a ranger station in the Grand Canyon, and as cool as a cucumber states that his wife had simply fallen to her death. He told rangers that they had stopped to take a picture. He turned away, turned back, and she was just gone. Donna's body was recovered about 160 feet below where Robert said he last saw her. The autopsy report states that Donna had suffered massive injuries, including abrasions, contusions, lacerations, and multiple fractures to her neck, chest, and lower extremities. Robert was never seriously implicated in Donna's death, and it was ruled an accident. As a grieving husband, he was in the national spotlight, appearing in several television interviews. He spoke about his wife Donna and the dangers of hiking in the Grand Canyon, which he continued to do after Donna's horrific death. After Donna's death, he reconnects and convinces his second wife, Sharon, to move back in with him. On October 2, 1994, Robert will find Sharon unresponsive with an empty bottle of Tylenol next to her. She died of a drug overdose the same day she moved back in with Robert. Sharon's death is not investigated by law enforcement. Mmm, what? In January 1999, the U.S. Department of Interior, National Park Service, and the counties of Coconino, Arizona, and Arapahoe, Colorado, started to link the cold case murders in the respective jurisdictions. They met with FBI's Flagstaff, Arizona resident agency and requested assistance. An assistant U.S. attorney, the AUSA, from the District of Arizona with experience in capital murder cases, who also had personal knowledge of the Grand Canyon, joined the team trying to get answers. The AUSA was able to unite the cases under the umbrella of federal jurisdiction, as the insurance fraud murder and the FBI agent in Flagstaff, Arizona, contacted the Bureau's National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crimes, NCABC. First, NCABC officials suggested investigators complete a subject history of Robert, making sure the investigators figure out every possible detail about him. They also recommended that the NCABC Behavioral Ass Assessment Questionnaire when interviewing some of the people associated with Robert. An early investigation found that Robert was an educated, intelligent, and successful man. Robert had careers in human relations and public speaking with a charismatic presence. It was also found that Robert had spent a significant amount of time living in different parts of Colorado and spent much time hiking in the Grand Canyon. One lead had sent an FBI agent to interview a woman living in Colorado who would contact authorities weeks after her initial interview. At the time she herself contacted the authorities, she showed them a letter given to her by Robert stating that he had terminal cancer. The investigative team, lacking in evidence, knew that they needed to get a confession from Robert. In Colorado, local law enforcement and FBI will support the investigators. Because any prosecution depends on the admissibility of a confession, the investigative team agreed to videotape the interview. Robert's terminal cancer creates speculation of mental competence. The investigators have a medical doctor analyze Robert's medical records, confirmed his condition, and advised them on his mental capacity. 
The investigators approach Robert at his home, and he agrees to do an interview at the local sheriff's office. The FBI agent and the Arapahoe County detective will initiate the actual interview with the assistant U.S. attorney monitoring the interview from another room. The agent from the National Park Service also observed the initial interview and did participate in day two of the interview process. The first day of questioning lasted about four hours. Investigators confront Robert about the 1978 murders of his first wife and his two children, the drug overdose of his second wife, and the murder of his third wife in the Grand Canyon. At the end of the questioning, Robert will tell the investigators, Well, you're naming one too many, remember? He left telling investigators he would let them know if he wanted to continue any type of interview. Robert contacts the FBI the next morning to let them know he wanted to continue with the interview. Luckily for all involved, the interview continued where it left off, despite an overnight break. During day two of questioning, Robert tells investigators how, while being married to his first wife, he falls in love with his soon-to-be second wife. He thought it best to shoot his wife and teenage children to death. He thought it best that the children be with her. He also admitted to smothering his teenage son with a pillow since the gunshot wound to his chest proved not to be fatal. He adamantly denies any involvement in the death of his second wife, clinging to the presumption that her death was due to an overdose. He refused to discuss anything about his third wife's death in the Grand Canyon because he wanted to avoid any potential lawsuit that might be brought on by his third wife's adult children. When investigators provoked his ego, telling him that he wasn't a real serial killer, that killing three people at one time didn't count, after this, Robert's ego gets the best of him, and he not only confesses, but brags how he pushed his third wife to her death. His trusting wife is pushed backwards while staring at her husband in the face as she plummets 160 feet to her death. Enter the Conspiracy Corner. strange that Robert's second wife Sharon's death isn't investigated by law enforcement when it happens. How is that after being back with Robert for one day, she is found with an empty bottle of Tylenol next to her after an alleged overdose? It's possible that because he moved around so much, his guilt was not apparent. But it doesn't make you feel any better, does it? A behavioral analysis of Robert will uncover a personality only concerned with his public reputation. He found it easier to kill his wives rather than to get a divorce. He said that he was not like other serial killers. Robert believed that investigators, when they told him the FBI profilers wanted to study him because he was a unique kind of killer, ego much, he was sentenced to life imprisonment without parole and died in prison from cancer. Karma strikes again. My hope is that no one has to live in fear, ever. As always, I will never give up and read the signs. Special thanks to all the reading materials I could get my hands on, internet mostly. 
thanks to wikipedia.org. Thanks so much for listening. I am Rachel Vallisnor, and this is the podcast, Hell is Not the End. <laughs>